I lied a few weeks ago when I told all you hippies to chain, hold on for a second after we played the birds. Today's song is, is Satisfaction by Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, and this is going to come right out of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Mick Jagger said, a man came on the radio with useless information trying to fire my imagination. Uh, later verses in this song will say, when I'm watching my TV and a man comes on to tell me, trying to sell me this or that, I can't get no satisfaction just over and over again. And the obvious implication is that no matter what you try to, to buy, to sell, to do, to gain satisfaction in life, both Mick Jagger and the preacher in Ecclesiastes are going to agree that it will not ultimately satisfy. Uh, one of the key verses that we're going to look at today is, is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. And it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And this also is vanity. It's a very, very famous Dutch Impressionist artist, uh, came out of the Renaissance period. His name was Quentin Masseys, and he, he has a very famous painting. Perhaps you've seen this before. It's called The, the Money Lender and His Wife, and, and there's a picture of it on the screen for you. And I love these pictures. They really have a story to tell, and the way that they do them, it, uh, it comes out just as you can see the action and, and all of the things that are make this painting really come to life. And so if you see even, even the details of this painting down to this crystal glass on the bottom and, and how that's reflected in, in oil and a canvas painting here and the facial features, even the hands and the details, you even see stuff in the, in the books, bookshelves behind you that bring out the details of, of what these artists were able to do hundreds of years ago. It's, it's really amazing when you think about it. In this painting in particular, there's a, we're assuming that this is a couple, a husband and a wife perhaps, a very uh, wealthy couple. The wife has sat down to do her devotions. We're assuming that she was able during the Renaissance period to, to purchase a Bible with the money that, that he was making. She's doing her quiet times. Meanwhile, the money lender himself is, is weighing on the scales the exact amount of each individual coin that he made for the day. And, and as she turns the page, as she sits down to do her quiet times and devotions, she can't help but be distracted by money and wealth. The question for all of us is, is, of course, how easy is it for money in our careers to distract us from worshiping God? Interesting, during World War II, the whole world was drastically changed in its economy. But perhaps nowhere was that economy more influenced than Great Britain. Dorothy Sayers, is this a, a name that's familiar with to you guys? Dorothy Sayers was the first woman to graduate Oxford University. Um, she later earned a, a master's in arts degree from Oxford, first woman to get both an undergraduate and a master's from Oxford. She, she wrote an essay at this time called Why Work? And it's, I've, I've got a copy of it up here for you. If you want to come, take a look at it, page through it, make a copy. That's great after the service. But her main thesis was that the war first forced Great Britain and really all of Western Europe out of an economy of consumption and into an economy of conservation instead. 
where everybody had to evaluate their work and the things that they were doing based on its worth and its purpose in a completely different state of mind and a completely different economy. There was a difference between working for the love of money and working to glorify God. You were forced out of one position and almost into another, or between the philosophy that some people work to live or live to work. And so before the war, you could go out and you could buy clothing and not really think about it. If it gets a rip or a tear, you would just throw it away and go buy new clothing. Before the war, you could trade in your old car and and scrap it when it was ready to go in order to upgrade to the newest and the next model. Before the war, large quantities of food that weren't used were either burned or, or just thrown away entirely, but during the war, you couldn't do any of that. Foods were rationed. Fats were rationed. Great Britain had to go from that consuming economy to a conserving one instead. And Sawyer says, Sayer says herself, she was a writer. And so she writes in this essay, when paper is scarce, we must or we should think whether what we have to say is worth saying before writing or printing it. Here's a a lengthy quote from Sayers. I've got a couple for you. She said, unless we change our whole way of thought about work, I do not think we shall ever escape from the appalling squirrel cage of economic confusion in which we have been madly turning for the last three centuries or so, the cage in which we landed ourselves by acquiescing to a social system based upon envy and avarice. She continues, The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead in terms of the work itself that is done. And Philip Ryken wrote a book um, called Why Everything Matters, the Gospel and Ecclesiastes. And here's what he said. Ecclesiastes warns us that living for things that only money can buy is vanity. And to help us to avoid coming down with a bad case of affluenza, the book gives us a long list of reasons why the pursuit of money will always lead us to spiritual bankruptcy. All right, so here we are, November 29th, in the midst of COVID pandemic 2020. And the title of my sermon is Life and Affluenza. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, and just talk about four symptoms of affluenza, four symptoms that we ourselves might be approaching our lifestyle, our work, and our careers in a way that isn't honoring to God, so that we are not distracted from worshiping God as we live in our our careers and our jobs. Number one this morning and number one in your outline. Symptom number one of affluenza making our career life more important than our spiritual life. Making our career life more important than our spiritual life. Some of us fear job loss more than we fear God loss. Some work harder to keep their career life intact than they do to keep their family life and their spiritual church life intact. I want you to look down at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, and as you guys are turning there, let me pray for us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Father in heaven, thank you um, 
for your goodness to us, God. Thank you that you are a worthy God of our praise and our worship. Lord, I pray that uh, as we take some time now after Thanksgiving to, to come together as a church and to look into your word, that you would change us deeply from the inside out, help the truth of the gospel to land on our soft hearts, to be molded and shaped by it. And Lord, as each of us kind of uh, take a step back as we read these words in Ecclesiastes and uh, apply them to our own life, help us to, to repent in those areas that desperately need your attention, repentance and confession. Help us to live a life that is ultimately glorifying mostly to you. Help us to put our priorities in order. Lord, we thank you for this church family. Thank you for uh, health and well-being that we have. Pray that you would continue to protect us here at Tulsa Bible Church. Lord, we give you this, this time and ask that you would receive the glory and the honor. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray this morning. Amen. Some of us fear job loss more than we fear God loss. Look down at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Verse 3. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, most people take Ecclesiastes 5, these verses, well out of their context. The first thing to notice about these verses is that the larger context in Ecclesiastes is all about work. The reason we know that is because going back to chapter 4, the word toil occurs about five or six times in your Hebrew text. You're also going to see it juxtaposed to a phrase, skill in work. When the preacher comes to Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1, he is continuing his thread about work and he is applying careers and jobs to our spiritual life, to when we worship God. And why wouldn't this topic of work be extremely important to the preacher? We're assuming that this is Solomon for one thing. Solomon was a tireless worker. He built the temple, one of the, called the eighth wonder of the world, basically. He was a, a king who was constantly working. For another thing, Solomon realized that the majority of his adult life, just like the majority of most of our adult lives, will be spent at work, doing our jobs. So the question is, what does work have to do with going to the temple? What does work have to do with worshiping God and, and making these vows? One of the reasons an Israelite would go to the temple in the first place is to sacrifice to God and make a votive offering, make a vow to God. The worshiper would commit to undertake an action, most of the time it was a sacrifice, and ask God to work on his or her behalf as long as he was honored with the sacrifice that the worshiper was making. You see this with, um, with Hannah in 1 Samuel. Remember, Hannah asks God for um, a child. She was barren and she couldn't give birth. She asked God for a child and she says, if you will give me a child, I will give him or her completely to you. And that was the birth of Samuel. Jephthah in Judges chapter 11 is another great example of a vow. 
God, if you will deliver us from our enemies this day, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of my house, which happened to be his daughter. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 25, tells us a little bit about a theology of vows. Listen to what Solomon says. It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later consider his vows. That certainly appeals to verse 5 in your text, Ecclesiastes 5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. But what I want you to do is look back at verse 3. So I think this is the crux of what the preacher is saying. Verse 3, For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. The preacher says, Do not be rash with your mouth. Instead, be slow to speak, be quick to listen. James picks up on this. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It's, it's really hard to interpret. This is a proverb that the preacher is giving us. It's really hard to interpret this just in humility. What we believe the preacher is doing is he's making a comparison and he's using an analogy to do so. It seems like he's saying this, people who have success or who want success in life also have many dreams, desires, things that they want to do if God grants them that success. And just, have, just as fools have many words, so successful people have many dreams and desires before God. God just, you've, you've probably said this before at some point in your life. I did this when I was uh, playing golf. I had a, a, a playing ability test that I had to pass two 18-hole rounds, one right on, on top of the other, and shoot less than about seven over par. I was, I was the low pro for the day. The night before, I prayed to God. I said, God, just allow me to pass this test so I can become a PGA-licensed professional. I was the low pro. I shot one under par for 36 holes of golf. Claimed the fame. Didn't do a whole lot after that with that uh, lucrative golf career. God, grant me this... Sorry. This is way off topic. God, grant me this promotion. Help me to get this job. And if you do, I promise I will take my spiritual life more seriously. God, if you will give me success in my career path, I will give you my family path. I promise that I'll get more involved in the church. I promise that I'll have quiet times on a more regular basis. Has, have you ever prayed these kind of prayers before? But look, look what he says. Instead, look down at verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You have, you ask, and you do not have because you ask with the wrong motives so that you can spend it on your own desires. Don't make these rash vows. Verse 7, For when dreams increase, and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. More than success in your work, more than dedication to your career, fear God. Fear God more than you fear anything else. Put your priorities in order. This is the first time that the preacher is going to use this word fear. He is going to end with this word fear. It is a philosophy of existence before an all-holy God, that of utmost priority, the first things are first, and that first thing in his life is to fear God. 
And so we fear God more than we fear losing a promotion or losing a job. We keep that relationship tight so that all the other relationships are intact and in their proper order. Symptom number one that you might struggle with affluenza is making your career life more important than your spiritual life. And listen, God does not take away career lives. He builds them when they are lived in their proper order in their priorities before God. And he honors a successful career. As long as it is loved less than God, he will do that. Symptom number two, you might be struggling with affluenza. Playing politics is more important than protecting the poor. Playing politics in the corporate ladder is more important than protecting the poor. Look down at verse eight and nine. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. This is a fallen world. It really should not surprise us. Do not be amazed at the matter For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Again, a a very difficult passage, kind of strange, especially when you add verse 9 after verse 8. Verse 8 aligns oppression with the poor with a violation of justice and righteousness. And violation is a Hebrew word there that literally means robbery. Okay, so the ESV says violation of justice. The King James Version says a violent perverting of justice and righteousness. The New Living Translation calls it a miscarriage of justice and righteousness. To oppress the poor and to take advantage of them is a miscarriage. It is um, robbing them of the justice that is due. So first, the preacher says, do not be surprised when you see this happening. But second, the high official is watched by a higher one, and there is yet a higher official even over him. There seems to be a preoccupation with higher-ups to the detriment of the poor in this passage. The key word, I believe, is verse 8. Your translation will say watched or perhaps even watched out. Is the preacher saying that higher-ups are mainly watching out for other higher-ups? that people in positions of power are only concerned about other people in positions of great power. When that happens, politics with men becomes more important than pleasing God and taking care of the poor and caring for the oppressed. Verse 9 is, is again, just in all humility, this is very, very difficult to translate in Hebrew. Verse 9, it is gain for land in every way when a a king is committed to cultivated fields. You can take this verse either in a positive fashion or in a negative fashion, saying the exact opposite. Okay, so thanks for Hebrew exegesis here. Positively, this, this verse could be saying that a king who is committed to the poor farmer is of, of gain to everybody. This is a, a successful king. This is a godly king. A negative view is that this verse could be saying a selfish king looks out only for his own interests against the interests of the, of the poor farmer. And so you've got to navigate the difficulties there. Listen, there's nothing wrong with earning your way to the top. There's nothing inherently sinful about climbing the corporate ladder. 
What the preacher is telling us is don't do that while neglecting the needy and the poor among you. There's a way to do that in a godly sense that brings honor to him and he values. There's a way to do that in an ungodly and a sinful sense. And so go to scripture and use wisdom to achieve the success that God is allowing you to achieve in your jobs and understand that that, in fact, is a blessing of God to you by his grace. John D. Rockefeller, uh, Rockefeller Plaza, have you ever heard of this place? It's kind of famous. There's a big TV up there. He was once the, strong, the, the richest man on the face of the earth. And when he was asked how much money is enough, Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more. That's a mentality that describes symptom number two. Playing politics, neglecting the poor, instead of protecting them with your positions and with your authority and your power. Symptom number three of affluenza. Satisfaction not guaranteed. Satisfaction not guaranteed. Look down at verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 14. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. If you highlight, circle right in your Bible, verse 10 is a really great verse to memorize for chapter 5. It captures the sentiment of almost every other verse here. Verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the, is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The preacher talks about the value of a, a good night's sleep here. While the laborer who works really hard and probably makes very little money sleeps well, a rich man who makes much, eats much, and sleeps poorly. What the preacher is attempting to do in this passage is to describe the idols that we struggle with when it comes to our, our wealth, our income, and our careers. And idols, like any other sin that we struggle with in our heart, they tend to come in bunches. They're, they're groups of idols, and there's differences between idols. Tim Keller talks a lot about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and, and I would recommend that to you. Idols almost always come in clusters, and there's surface idols that are easy for us to see. They're easy for other people to see in our hearts, but there's also deep idols, and those are a little harder, especially when they're revealed to us. Uh, money, spouse, children, possessions, all of those things are surface idols. You can tell when people are struggling with those things, if you have any kind of association or relationship with them. The danger is they often mask a much deeper problem, a deeper idol that we don't want to face or deal with. Some people want money or a lucrative career so that they can control their lives more. And there's a deep-seated idol of control, of wanting to be your own God. That takes you all the way back to the very first sin in Genesis 3. Others want money to access a, a social class. There's a deeper idol there of, of power and influence and even your identity. Could your identity be marked up in something that, is, that you are putting ahead of God for your significance and your value 
not only to yourself, but before other people. Ultimately, we can't just deal with the surface idols. We also have to deal with the deep-seated idols and it, that get to the root of our sin issues at their heart. The key, again, is, is verse 10. It's the things that we love. Notice the, the repetition and the mention of, of he who, in verse 10, loves money. You will not be satisfied with money. That is a, a propositional truth. If you love money, you will not be satisfied. You will just want more and more of it. If you love your career, you're not going to be satisfied with your career. You're going to want more power, more success, more achievement. It's never going to be enough. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth and his income, this is also vanity. And, and Tremper Longman is a um, commentary on Ecclesiastes. He put it this way, and I think this is a, a good, avid description of what's going on here. No matter how much money a person has, there is always the possibility of and the desire for more. The implication is that those who set the acquisition of money as their highest goal in life have a never-ending task. And the way that the Bible talks about this is to use the word glory, kavod. We have talked about this so much, and it's just worth repeating. I'll, I'll say it as many different times in as many different ways until it communicates to my heart and to all of our hearts at TBC. When we look to something for glory, we look for something that is weighty or significant, something that has its biggest priority in our life. For something to be glorious to us, it has the priority of place in our life. If we say that our, our marriage is our most glorious aspect of our life, that is what we are looking to for our greatest satisfaction and fulfillment. The whole idea is that any time that you give glory, your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate significance and importance, any time when you place the weight of glory on anything other than God, you will fall short of the glory and the satisfaction that God designed for you to have with him and him alone. And so all of us have sinned and fallen short of the what? The glory of God because all of us at some point in time in our life without Christ look to someone or something else for our greatest significance, achievement, value, and identity. But what? All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's not the end. Jesus comes in to satisfy that glory and to give us the contentment and the peace that only he can have. All of these other things, all of these other idols, the things that we hold on to for glory, if you hold on tightly to them, they will destroy you. They will eat you alive. You will never have enough of it. The pursuit of it is never ending because it is unlike the glory of God in that it will not satisfy. It wasn't designed to satisfy. Not long ago, there was a very successful golfer on the European tour. His name was Simon Dyson. Had an unbelievable string of victories on the European tour. And a sports reporter asked him at the end of another great year in achievement and success, Simon, is there anything that you are afraid of? And listen to his response. He said this, death. I'm in a position now where I can pretty much do anything I want. Dying wouldn't be good for me right now. Look down at verse 15. 
As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again. Naked he came in, naked he shall go out. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much, much vexation and sickness and in anger. Symptom number three is that satisfaction is not guaranteed. Symptom number four, affluenza. A joyless, insatiable appetite for more. A joyless, insatiable appetite for more. I want you to skip the end of chapter five. We're going to come back to that and look at chapter six, verse one. We don't have a whole lot of time to dig into this, so I'm just going to read through verses one through nine here of chapter six. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, Kohelet says, and it lies heavy on mankind. Verse two. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Listen really carefully. If God has given you all of that and you feel like you lack nothing, be very careful. Be very, very careful and tread lightly in the steps that are ahead of you. It lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say, a stillborn, stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better in the sight, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And that is the last time that the preacher is going to use that phrase, this is vanity and a striving after the wind. It gives us the bookends from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. We're going to make a huge transition into the rest of the book now. It takes on a little bit different flavor and tenor. The general idea from these verses is verse 9, the things that someone holds on to in their hands is better than the things that we desire but we do not have in our hands. Have you ever heard this maxim before? A one bird in the hand is better than two in the bush? Is that, am I saying that right? I think that's right. Everything rings with contentment in these verses, and that is the key to life and is key to enjoyment of the things that God has given you. So let's apply this long swath of text when we're talking about our approach to our careers and the wealth, if God so grants it to us. Number one, it is useless to worship the gifts and not the giver. It is useless to worship the gifts of God and not the giver who is God. Our American culture has perfected the worship of God's blessing without worshiping God himself. We are such a blessed people. 
We are given the gifts of God over and over again, and general revelation talks about that theology. And yet we do not translate that into the worship of the giver who is God. Remember the parable of the, of the lost sons, the parable of the prodigal? There's two sons. It's not only the prodigal son, but it's also the elder, the elder son, the elder brother. The prodigal returned, and they celebrated by slaughtering the fattened calf. The elder son was still lost at the end of that parable because he was worshiping the father's stuff more than he was worshiping the father himself. One of the telltale signs that you have an elder brother mentality deeply rooted in your heart or deeply rooted in my heart toward our work is that when your work doesn't give you what you want, you're not just sorrowful, you are bitter and angry and it influences all of your other relationships in life. And here's where I want you to turn back to chapter 5, look at verse 18. Here's Kohelet's conclusion here. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given, God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. Your toil, your work is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The gift of a, of a career, of an income, of a job is a gift, and it's a gift from God. And so we celebrate that gift along with the giver, who is God who ultimately provides it under a very Christian theology of our work. Our work, our jobs are a gift, and to separate those from the giver is a grievous evil, the preacher would say. Number two, there's nothing wrong with having money. The problem is when money has us. There's nothing wrong with owning possessions. The problem comes when possessions own us. I'll never forget when Chuck Swindoll was preaching on this passage in, uh, in seminary. And he just accentuated this, this whole idea. If God has given you wealth, if he has blessed you with a great career, don't allow it to own you. Use it as an opportunity to glorify him and be just as giving as the giver who gave you that success and wealth in the first place. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13, we're reminded, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, riches that were kept by their owner to his or her own hurt. You know, Jesus talks about greed in the Gospels more than he talks about almost any other sin, more than he talks about sex, adultery, more than he talks about prayer, he talks about greed in our attitude toward money. This is a troubling statistic in, in churches today. I just want to bring it to light and let it kind of sink in and, and soften, hopefully soften all of our hearts. First of all, there's a postmodern disposition that, that we are afflicted to in our culture, and that is an exclusive humanism. What that means is that this culture is wholly dedicated to the, flourish, the flourishing of humanity more than anything else. 
our enjoyment and our satisfaction come first. And in any culture where that is the baseline narrative, all the things that we spend our money on, the time that we spend doing the things that we do, is going to be rooted in exclusive humanistic mentality, self. What can I do where I can enjoy life better and to the fullest for myself? It tells you what a culture prioritizes. It tells you what a culture will give toward and sacrifice for. The other disturbing statistic in churches today is, is the, the tendency of younger families to be caught up in a, a self-gratification mentality more than elderly families, older families. With younger families especially, the discipline of regularly giving is harder. And the statistics are showing if you're going to have a younger demographic in your church, you better have way more people giving because they don't give as much money. That's a problem that we have to deal with in our culture on a regular basis. And that's something that the Bible will talk about, how we should handle and be good stewards of the resources that God has enabled us to have because guess what? They're not ours anyway. We don't own them. He has allowed us to steward them to his glory. Martin Luther is a famous quote. He said, I will ultimately forsake all of my wealth the day that I die. Knowing that, I will ultimately forsake all of my wealth the days that I live. That's the mentality that we need to have toward the things that God has given us. Number three, and this comes from uh, Sayers' essay on why work. Christians should fight tooth and nail, not merely for employment, but also for the quality of our work that we do. Christians should fight tooth and nail, not merely for employment and for a job, but for the quality of our work, the things that we put our hands to. All of us should be, a- should be asking this question. Anything, if it's worth doing, it's ultimately worth doing well, right? And so our jobs should be worth doing. Are they worth doing well? Scripture's answer and God's answer is, of course they are. But here's what Sayer says. The greatest insult which a commercial age has offered to the worker has been to rob him of all interest in the end product of the work and force him to dedicate his life to making badly things that were not worth making. Let me, let me just read that again. The greatest insult which a commercial age has offered the worker has been to rob him of all interest in the end product of the work and force him to dedicate his life to making badly things that were not worth making. All of us are called to serve God in our professions, not just outside of them. And your duty as a Christian in your work is to serve the work that you do. And so if you are a student, and you are home for the holidays, and you are struggling with your grades, guess what God would tell you? Hit the books. Your work is a reflection of the value of the time that I've given you in school to study and to learn the things that you need to learn. If you're an investment banker and all of your accounts are down and investments are way low, God would tell you this, get to work. Figure out a way to raise those investments. Do your job that's worth doing to the glory of God. If you're a painter and you stink at painting, that is a problem in your Christian life. Because guess what? You do all things with excellence as to the Lord. It is the Lord whom we serve in our professions. 
and it is a reflection of the gospel. If you do your job poorly, that is a reflection of, of Christ's representation. Wherever you are working, if you do your job well, that is also a reflection of the beauty of the gospel and what God has given you to do during your time working through your careers. Jesus was a carpenter. I'm assuming there wasn't a whole lot of carpentry that was, that was misplaced, out of line, or shoddy in his work. I'm assuming that he did his work to the fullest. And so as a pastor, there's going to be times when you might even be tempted to come to church and sit in a congregational meeting and talk about things where, where I would say, you know what, you probably need to go back to the desk and do your work to the glory of God and influence the people that you have right in front of you on a day-in and day-out basis rather than come to some church meeting. We do our work ultimately for the glory of God. And I want to close by, by bringing up this, this painting. The details of this painting. Right down here at the bottom, you'll see a little mirror reflecting an image. Do you see that? In that mirror, there's a shape of a cross. And in fact, if you, if you blew up that painting, and I'd encourage you to go online and look at it, you'll see a person down in the dark part of that mirror reflection, reaching out for the base of the cross. Most people think that's Massey's himself. He painted himself into the picture. Reaching out for the cross when everybody else in the painting is reaching out for the coins, for the material wealth, for the career. This painting is a reminder anything that we reach out for to give us ultimate satisfaction, anything that we reach to give us what only God can give, security, significance, identity, peace, relationship, enjoyment, anything that we reach out to for satisfaction that is not God will not satisfy you in life. Please learn these lessons from the preacher. He will save you steps in life. And then he will build your careers and he will build your pursuits as long as they are loved less than him. What do you do when you find out and you see yourself reaching for things for glory that aren't God? The Bible would say, repent. Come to a complete change of mind. At the end of the day, when you get to the pearly gates, Nobody's going to ask you how much money you made. Nobody's going to ask you if you were successful in your career or not. The one thing that they will ask you is who took priority of place in your life. Did you place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation? If you haven't found your greatest satisfaction reaching out to the cross, the Bible would say repent and confess of that sin and come to a complete change of mind about the way that you are living your life. The gospel in Ecclesiastes through our work is this. At the end of the day, your greatest pursuit must be the cross of Christ. It must be your relationship with Jesus. Anything else will fall short of the glory of God. Thankfully, we have an identity and a significance because of the gospel that is far greater than anything this world can offer. If our identity is truly caught up in the person and work of Christ, that's when we have significance. 
That's when we have peace. A right relationship with Christ is the only thing that matters this side of eternity because without it, your life is temporary. Here one day and gone the next. My prayer for us at TBC is that all of us will find our greatest satisfaction in the cross and our greatest significance in Jesus and his work on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I thank you for a, a very relevant, timely passage of scripture that was written thousands of years ago. Help us to approach our careers through the lens of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would build our careers. You would, in your blessing and in your timing and your patience and your gifts to us, that you would see fit to bless us in those areas of our pursuits, in our life, the the things that we dedicate so much of our time to on a weekly basis. We ask that you would bless them because they are loved less than, than you in our hearts. Lord, those things that have taken a priority for us, we confess those to you. We ask that you would reveal them to our hearts. Help us to, uh, help us to confess those things, to shatter them at the foot of the cross, and to live for you as our utmost priority. God, we ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen. I want to encourage you to grab one of our prayer calendars. Today's verse was Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, that we thank God because he is worthy to be praised. Uh, December prayer calendars are out in the foyer. Uh, take a copy with you. What I do is I just crease that thing right in the half and put it in the cover of my Bible, and so every time I open my Bible at the beginning of the day, I take a look at those prayer requests, and I encourage you to do so, to unite with us in prayer. If you wanted to look at uh, Dorothy Sayers' essay, Why Work? It's up here. Uh, this book is called, really quick, got one other announcement. This book is called Letters to a Diminished Church, Passionate Arguments for the Relevance of Christian Doctrine by Dorothy Sayers. It's got a lot of great essays in it. Why Work is, is one of the essays among many. Come and uh, take a look at this if you're interested. And finally, don't forget, on Thursday, December 3rd at 11 o'clock, we'll have a funeral here for Karma Lavellet. Uh, a lot of you know Karma and Bill. There's a lot of family in Arizona. They still have family here in Tulsa as well. They'll be doing the service here at 11 o'clock. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that if you can. Um, there's one other thing. Kirk, what was it? I forget. So I think that's about it. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us, for being us here. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Enjoy the rest of the weekend, and we'll see you guys next time. All right.